Due to a mild case of laryngitis, I am reading for our beloved senior pastor. Today we're starting a study of the book of Micah. You can find it on page 776 in your pew Bibles. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire." Like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley. And uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Chapter 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it. Because it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his, and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily. For it will be a time of disaster. In that day, They shall take up a taunt song against you and mourn bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. The changes, he changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me to an apostate. He allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach. Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses, from their young children, you take away my splendor forever. 
Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Good morning, church. Thank you, Don, for reading for us. I sneaked out during the past the peace and got a cough drop from the choir. No wonder they sing so powerfully. I'm just now recovering from that thing. It has my mouth on fire, but maybe it'll get us through this rest of this message. I'm departing from the chronological order of our study of the minor prophets. We've been studying them for a few months. I'm departing from the chronological order to skip ahead to Micah, who wrote, as we are told here in verse one, during the reigns of Jotham and Ahaz, Hezekiah, overlapped with Isaiah. He was a prophet to Judah. So he's writing in the 700s, uh, sometime before the, the fall of the northern tribes, Israel in 722, and a couple of hundred years before, almost a couple of hundred years before the fall of, the, of Judah. He's warning them to repent before they are uh, plundered and taken into exile. And I'm going to Micah for this Advent series because it, it, is, it has its, its attachment to Advent for us. You know the prophecy, we read it every year from Micah 5. Uh, Blessed are you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too small among the clans of Judah, but out of you I will bring a king of old from ancient times. And then I, I, I invite you to read the rest of Micah tonight or or through this week, and you'll see it's very appropriate for Advent because here the Lord is anticipating, is prophesying the kind of king Jesus would come to be. He's an ancient king. He's always ruled. He's the future king for Israel and Judah. He's our future king as well, coming to take us again. So I want us to look at this beautiful king We've been given in Jesus who has come from his throne to save us. Meditate on that as we approach Advent and fall in love with him afresh. What kind of king do we need? A number of years ago, friends of mine who were missionaries to England, they had gone there to be Presbyterian missionaries, to start Presbyterian churches and, and even a Presbyterian denomination because Presbyterianism went extinct in the late 1700s. They raised up a whole new denomination. 
they told a story in one of their support letters that they wrote back to us, told a story about one of their fellow uh, church planters named Jeff, who planted a church in the southern part of England near the Isle of Wight. Jeff grew up in Buckingham Palace, not because he was royalty, but because his father was a grenadier for um, King George. Grenadier is kind of a secret service man protecting the king, accompanying the king. So Jeff and his sister would live in Buckingham Palace for most of the year. And then in the summers, they would go south and uh, spend the time with their grandmother. So one summer, uh, King George came down to Isle of Wight to participate in the Royal Regatta, the sailing ships. And uh, they were lined up. Jeff and his little sister ran up to the ropes that were marking off the place where the king would come up off the sail, off of his yacht and uh, to his carriage. And they were, they were pressing in toward the rope so they could get a sight, yes, of the king, but also of their dad. There was at the same time, lots of royalty watchers and one who had made her life a vocation of being noticed by royalty. So she muscled her way into the front, saw these little kids up against the ropes, moved them out of the way and positioned herself strategically to be noticed by King George. Well, he did notice her because of her rude actions and he stopped. Well, her dream had come true. She almost swooned, but then he knelt down and he spoke to the children, to Jeff and his sister. And he said, your father will be along in just a minute. He got up and walked away. Well, she was angry. She turned to these kids and said, who are you that you would be noticed by the king? And before they could answer, the king also heard those words. So he turned on heel and he came back and he looked her in the eye and he said, because we live in the same house together. Who could help but love a king like that? A king who would stoop down and notice children of one of the, one of the attendants that he could easily look over, but to notice them in the first place. And then would also come and advocate for them and give a buffer against this bullying woman. Well, how much more do we have a king who is irresistible or should be irresistible to love, who should be irresistible to submit to than this king, Jesus? And there are various aspects of his kingship that we'll notice as we study through Micah. But this morning, I want you to see that he's a shepherd king. It's just the kind of king we need, a shepherd king. One who will deliver us from not only the, the enemies of Micah's people, but we share the same enemies. Those enemies are self-centeredness, self-centered worship in particular. 
self-centered society, selfish society around us. And then I've changed the third point. Sinister, sinister enemies. Sinister rulers. Let's think about the first one. We need a king who will, who will shepherd us out and away from our enemy, which is our own self-centered worship. This isn't a new theme to us. We've seen this theme in the other prophets that we've studied. In fact, it's all over the Bible. Every, every sin, every departure from walking with the Lord is ultimately an act of self-centered worship. It's actually, it's all, it's always a, a default in worship, a failure to see the beauty and the superiority, the greatness, the wonder, the grace of our great God manifested in Jesus Christ. It's no less true here in Micah. At the root of all their sins is self-centered worship. Now, sometimes people, uh, sometimes preachers talk about idols. They address our idols. We have our idols. But, you know, I think that's sometimes hard for us to process as, as modern people. We think, I don't have any graven images, so that's not applicable to me. But we all know what selfishness is. And we all know what being self-centered is. And that is what Micah is addressing in these people. The reason they're being apathetic toward the poor, the disenfranchised, the distressed, the oppressed. The reason they're being cruel and insensitive to one another. The reason they're consuming everything for themselves is because they fail to worship the God of grace who has brought them out of bondage. No, they have even gone so far as to make a religion that will fit their, their comforts. We read about it here when he says, uh, find a preacher who will say, drink often and consume often. Uh, verse 11 of chapter two, find a preacher like that should be easy in your world. That's what you have, he says. You have, you have shaped your religion in such a way that it, that it confirms what you want. It affirms your sexual indulgences. It affirms your consumerism. It affirms your materialism. It affirms your neglect of those around you who have less than you do. It affirms your self-centeredness. Why? Because you've made the gods yourself. Whether it's in Samaria, the, the, the capital of the northern tribes, where they literally had set up idols, or whether it's in Jerusalem, where you're feigning worship to the one true God, but in effect, you're no different from the pagan idolaters in the north because you fashioned God in the image you want him to be. Same is possible for us. We can so pursue what we want, what indulges us, what doesn't threaten us, what keeps us comfortable, which provides no challenge or no cost to following Jesus. We can, we can follow that so much that we can even envision 
a God who approves of what we're doing. We can even find loopholes in scripture that somehow affirm the way we want to think and feel. What does a loving shepherd king do for that? We need a shepherd king. That self-centeredness is so powerful. We need a shepherd king who will drive it out and replace it with his love. You know, I first got fascinated with this theme of selfishness when I was a, a brand new pastor. And I was uh, looking at my congregation and my, and my subculture, and I eventually had to look at my own heart too. And I, I, I saw our selfishness, our consumption with self, but I, I didn't know exactly what was the, the cause of that, that lack of concern for following Christ. And I, I started reading, I, I wondered, what, what, what were those, those first great awakening preachers preaching at the turn of the 18th century, what were they preaching that awakened those churches so dramatically? Because those society, that society was very much like ours. Very few of them went to church. Most of them were very smug in their accomplishments, thinking we've carved a civilization out of a wilderness. And they were, they were consuming for themselves. They were neglecting the poor. They were cruel to one another. And they prided themselves in being virtuous and thought that the only reason we should ever give lip service to God is so that we can keep foreign enemies from invading us. And I thought, how did, how did those awakening preachers wake those people up? They didn't think they had any sins. They didn't have those obvious bad sins. I started reading those sermons, the sermons of Bostwick and Tennant and Wake and, and Whitfield and, and, um, and, and uh, Edwards. And the common theme was selfishness. Preaching at selfishness. And the spirit fell on that preaching and awakened people to see that their sin, though they didn't do the things that they had previously thought were so bad, that sin of selfishness, of ingratitude, of just looking to themselves and their needs, it broke them and they felt that they were, they were sinking into hell unless Jesus interposed and saved them with his blood. This is what Micah is preaching and he's preaching it passionately on behalf of God. I rip my clothes. He says in chapter 8, I'm, I go about, I, I, uh, chapter uh, 2, verse 8, I go about naked, or uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, stripped and naked, I make my lamentation like jackals. He's only representing the passion of God. Searching for, seeking, reaching his people and saying, I love you so much that I am willing to tear down everything that you trust in, to rip out everything beneath you, to take away all pride that you have in any virtuousness of your own until I bring you to the place where you become more humanized by worshiping me. What kind of shepherd king is it that will drive out self-centeredness It's a shepherd king who 
seeks. Who seeks. A shepherd king who could not be comfortable on his throne until he had obeyed the father who out of love for us said, I'll send my own son. And he sent his son to seek and to save that which was lost. He sought us by becoming flesh. He sought us by taking up our humanity. He sought us all the way to the cross. He sought us into hell. He sought us in his ascent. And he continues to seek us with his wounds from the right hand of the father. It's that seeking grace, despite how many times we push him away. How how much we try to worship ourselves or make life about ourselves. It's that seeking grace that should melt our hearts. I thought about an image earlier this morning from the autobiography of, of John G. Payton. He was a famous missionary to the New Hebrides of the day. Now it's Vanuatu. <clears throat> and th- those people were thought to be headhunters and cannibals of the day. He took the gospel to them. In his autobiography, he, he describes the way he was, he was reared so lovingly by his mother and father. And then he comes all the way to the time and he goes off to university in Glasgow, which was a 40-mile walk just to the train station to take the train. His, his father walked him the first six miles of that journey. His father was an old man by then. White flowing hair, he said. Head uncovered, hat in hand. Their hearts were so moved that they couldn't really speak to each other. His father was moving his lips, praying for his son with every step. And he came for the, to the place where they were going to part ways and and the, the road took a bend. So he said, we bid each other adieu. And then I dashed off. He said, I dashed off around the corner. And when he thought that he was out of the sight of his, his father, he climbed a dike or a levee. And he escaped on the other side and just cried his eyes out. After he got himself together a bit, he climbed back up the dike only to spot his father climbing the dike looking for him. His dad was peering down the lane to try to see where his son had gone. He disappeared and then he thought he would climb over the dike and see if he was on the other side. But John Payton hid. His father not seeing him, tears in his eyes turned and went back home realizing he would probably never see his son again. This is the way Peyton reflects on that experience. The appearance of my father when we parted, his advice, prayers, and tears, the road, the dike, the climbing up on it, and then walking away head uncovered have often, often, all through life risen vividly before my mind and do so now while I am writing as if it had been but an hour ago. In my earlier years, particularly when exposed to many temptations, His parting form rose before me as that of a guardian angel. It is no Phariseeism, but deep gratitude, which makes me here testify that the memory of that scene not only helped by God's grace to keep me pure from the prevailing sins, but also stimulated me in all my studies that I might not fall short of his hopes 
in all my Christian duties that I might follow his shining example. What kind of love drives out self-centered worship? It's the love of a seeking shepherd king. What kind of what kind of king do we need to save us from a selfish society? We need a king who is not only seeking, but a king who is advocating. A king whose love we see goes after the most vulnerable of society. A king who has mercy on widows and orphans, on the poor. And when his love gets hold of his people, it causes them to be the same. We've lost so much of, of the power of the application of these minor prophets because they can be threatening to us, because they can make us uncomfortable. As I've said before, they're very nosy. They nose their way into all kinds of parts of our lives. And here in chapter 2, he addresses gentrification. We'll come back to that. Landlords, collection services, widows, orphans, and cowardly preachers, and more through the rest of the book. Now, what do I mean by gentrification? A similar thing happened in in, uh, Judah as happened in Israel. As they experienced some peace under King Uzziah, they were able to build up their economy. A middle class developed, and people could live more comfortably. But instead of becoming more generous because of those blessings, they became more selfish. And that middle class in Judah began to do what can happen. That is, once they became property owners, they wanted more property, even if it meant undercutting others. And they expanded their property to expand their income to the point that it, that it drove the poor into greater poverty. Now, we've historically called people who, land, who own land or own property, that is, they don't have to rent substandard housing. We call them gentry, landed gentry. And this phenomenon occurred with the advent of the automobile that people could move farther away from where they worked. They could go out into the countryside and start what became suburbs and decrease land of farms and so forth. And now the reverse has happened. People worldwide are moving from the suburbs into the cities. And gentrification is occurring in the cities. That is, those who had resources come into the city. They buy depressed properties. They fix them up. And they have a nice place to live. But it drives up the land values around them, including the rent. And the poor are no longer able to live there because they can't afford the rent. They can't afford to buy property. And so they're displaced out into the suburbs. Everything is changing. It's why we now are sometimes... Uh, fascinated that the crimes historically or the social problems historically identified with inner cities are now becoming commonplace in suburbs. Now, there's no, no sin about buying property, no sin about owning property, no sin about improving property. The problem comes when we have no regard for those who suffer while we succeed. 
So a new term to me anyway was taught to me by a man named Bob Lupton. He's discipled several of us in this congregation and, and throughout uh, this city, throughout the country. Bob Lupton left Vietnam at the end of the war and he said he moved to a new Vietnam in East Lake, around East Lake Country Club, Decatur area of Georgia, of Atlanta. And Bob Lupton moved in with the poor. And he saw that the poor remained generationally poor as long as they didn't own any property. So he, he said, how can we change that? And he began these micro enterprises to help people develop jobs, skills, so forth, to make enough income to save, enough save to buy and to escape this cycle of ever-increasing rent. And then he met Tom Cousins, who you've probably heard of if you've watched the FedEx Championship at the East Lake Country Club. East Lake Country Club was bought. It was a defunct country club because people had abandoned it to move to the suburbs. He bought that as the economic engine in order to realize this vision of gentrification with justice. That is, that those who had means would buy property and hold it for those who were in current rental situations that didn't, that their rent would not increase and they could help them by financial coaching to escape that cycle and or to enable them to buy their own homes. They developed the mixed income housing initiative of building a house that a poor person could rent or own, middle-class person could own, and a, a wealthier person could own. With the understanding not only that they needed each other economically, but the wealthy, the middle class, needed to learn lessons from the poor that they were not learning, and vice versa. And today, the East Lake Foundation is a tremendous success. Well, it was an was inspiration to me in my previous work, and it's an inspiration to some of the work that we do here in Alcee Ball, for instance. I could give you numerous stories from my previous life, but I would give you some encouraging stories from Alcee Ball, led by our own Seth and Julia Harkins and others of many of you involved in that. They've so far secured seven properties that were mostly abandoned. And with an investment of uh, fifty to $80,000, someone gives their loans at 2% interest, they can renovate that home through financial counseling, help those of their neighbors learn how to manage their income, how to manage property and so forth, and move them into those homes that they now are purchasing. They are paying mortgages at a lower price than what they were renting for. Some of them $100, $150 per month, cheaper to own their home, to have a mortgage, than to rent. And now they are beginning to escape generational poverty. And it just takes Christians. Non-Christians haven't been too interested in this idea. The Christians who say, this cash that I have, this or several groups of Christians who I've got, I can, I can cobble together $85,000 or so and 
and put up this loan. I'll get paid back at the closing. One of our members, several of our members have done this. He has three lots now that he wants to build from the ground up. It would take 80 to 100,000 per loan gets paid back. What a novel idea, but only novel because our culture has become so selfish. We're not, and, and it's allowing people to participate in the economy. It's allowing people to own, to restore their dignity. And do you think that they are willing to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ when you do something like that for them? Absolutely. Micah addresses these kinds of things. Micah addresses standing up for the sake of the poor who are, who are losing property by eminent domain or back taxes or adverse possession or any of the other clever things that we have today by which people lose their property and lose being stakeholders in their community and their city. And we have the privilege of imitating the God, the shepherd king who comes to the aid of the least and literally makes their lives different preaches the good news to the poor, to the outcast, to the imprisoned. Well, preachers don't escape his, his convictions here in verses six and following. Chapter two, Hezekiah says to his various, his colleague prophets who have just uh, blended in and tickled the ears of the people, made them feel comfortable. And, and he says, uh, we, we must preach the truth that sets prisoners free, that brings the good news of the kingdom to bear presently. There are, I have colleagues who are pastors in this gathering this morning, who are pastors, preachers who are gathered with me online. There are seminary students here. And then there are all of you who are called to preach the good news. Here's the encouragement. Preach the good news, even if it makes people uncomfortable. Even if you get accused, as we have been, from the far right, from the far left, you're called woke or a social gospel preacher, or you're called alt-right or hyper-conservative or narrow-minded fundamentalist, or a Marxist even. No matter what you're called, Preach this kind of transformational good news. That's not merely how you get into heaven, but how the gospel makes a real difference in this life, in the name of Jesus, and with the clear explanation of the only way of eternal salvation. Hezekiah, I mean, uh, Micah was an example of that kind of bold preacher. Not only was he criticized from the far right and the far left, but he was criticized from two-thirds of the middle. You notice he mentions three kings at the beginning, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Jotham doesn't, didn't listen to him. He sold out to the neighboring king. Ahaz didn't listen to him. He sold out to the neighboring king. Hezekiah didn't listen to him the first half of his, his reign. Hezekiah was so afraid of this bully, this sinister 
evil king of Assyria named Sennacherib, Hezekiah started paying him tribute. Just, just take this money and go away. Let us live in peace. That's what he's addressing in, the, in these, these last verses of chapter 2. He says, uh, God will take away the northern tribes because they didn't listen to me. And he'll take away the southern tribes too. If you sell out to those around you and compromise. Hezekiah was paying that tribute. Sennacherib took it at first, protected him at first. And then eventually he went for Jerusalem. Sennacherib plundered 46 of those, of those walled cities. The, the last half of chapter one that we didn't read, read with all those strange names. They're strange because they're puns. It's like saying, oh, oh, oh you who uh, want to be safe, go to your city of safety. These are puns on names of places where they have set up their idols, where they've become comfortable. And that's, that's going to be their trust. Hezekiah cut, I mean, uh, Sennacherib cut through all of those cities and put a siege around Jerusalem. He mocked Hezekiah for trusting in God. Look what it's gotten them so far. Look what I did to the north. I'm going to do the same to you. And Hezekiah finally listened to Micah. The old commentators used to say, Hezekiah led his reforms because he was reformed by Micah. Hezekiah finally listened to Micah that the only hope for this world, the only way to live in a flourishing way and to bring flourishing to other people is to live surrendered to the king. So Hezekiah decided he would do something different. Any other king would have said, oh, there's no hope. We're surrounded. He's going to just, just take the money and get out of here. Hezekiah didn't. Hezekiah finally listened to Micah. He went into his prayer closet. And he spread out the matter, matter before the Lord. The historical books tell us. And then he went to sleep. And the next morning... They got up and looked over the wall and all the Assyrians, the Bible says, second Kings 19, all the Assyrians woke up dead. 185,000 of them. The second greatest redemptive act in the old Testament next to Egypt and constantly uh, uh, alluded to as proving that God is a God who seeks and he advocates for the least. And with him, he is always a majority against any sinister foe. And Hezekiah went on to reform his city. And Hezekiah remains in the annals of heroic literature in the Bible today. Because he did not give in to his self-centeredness. He did not give in to a selfish society running for, for shelter. But he dared to submit himself to the Lord in such a way that the Lord would get a name for himself. It is our privilege to respond to the gospel like that.
to say this King Jesus who has come did not come merely to make me comfortable, but came to make me one who shares with him the privilege of preaching the good news to the poor, to the blind, to the imprisoned, to the outcast, to the widow, to the orphan, to the lost, to declare the year of Jubilee, a king who has come and is coming again. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we want to submit our lives to you today that we would not be ordinary people, that we would no longer be ordinary Christians, but we would submit ourselves and every part of ourselves to you in such a way that unbelievers are astonished and see good works and then in turn glorify our Father in heaven by embracing our Savior too. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen.